We are very glad that tonight there's um, no snow. It may be cold, but um, we're glad to see all of you here. This is a continuation of our popular Writers Live series, and you can find out more information uh, on our website, prattlibrary.org. Also, there are copies of our calendar, and uh, you can see all of the writers who are, are coming in the next it, the next three or four months. Um, we're also thrilled this evening. Uh, this is the first event that we have hosted in a new partnership with 1,000 Friends of Maryland, and we're excited to be working with them and hope that we can bring more programs of this nature, of this topic, um, in the future. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Drew Schmidt-Perkins, who is the Executive Director of 1,000 Friends of Maryland, and she's going to introduce her friend, Cade Benfield. Good evening. I also want to thank you for um, coming here, not going home to the warm woolly slippers and um, the extra layers, those warm sweatpants, and coming out for what should be a really interesting evening tonight. Um, this is going to be a great treat. Uh, I've known Cade for quite a while. Uh, his book is amazing. Um, and it really fits with so many of the different issues that Thousand Friends of Maryland has been working on so long, supporting people and the environment and communities. Uh, it digs into the really complicated issues behind this. It doesn't gloss over and say, just have a building that looks like this or just do a stormwater utility pond that does this. It actually looks at all these wonderful layers, which is what smart growth really asks for. And it's entertaining and well-written. Uh, and this is a real change from a lot of the stuff that we get to read on a daily basis. So thank you, Kate, for doing that for us, too. Um, and tonight we want this to be just the start of this conversation that we're going to have. Uh, and we ask you to continue it with us. We have some postcards, if you're not already involved with us and get our emails, that you can fill out so we can stay in touch and you can continue this conversation. We'll pass them out. Um, and we really want to have this effort that's, that is building upon the many, many different things that are happening here in Baltimore already with an amazing sustainability effort, with all the historic preservation, with the state growth, uh, smart growth <coughs> laws and programs that are going on. All these things are building us towards a much stronger future. But it's conversations like this with you all that will really help us uh, go over the next level. Um, so now, of course, I should say something a little bit about Cade um, so that people know who's speaking to you. Um, as many of you saw on the postcard, he is the Director of Sustainable Communities at the Natural Resources Defense Council, where he has really been this amazing voice advocating for real solutions to strengthen our cities and towns, an early voice, an important voice. And he has been called many things, um, but the most important thing um, is that he has been called again and again as one of the most influential people in this, on this topic. And a couple of examples. Um, how many of you know about LEED, the Green Building Standards? Well, uh, Kate has pointed out that the greenest building out in the middle of nowhere isn't a green building. It was really at the forefront of pulling together an effort to have LEED ND for neighborhood design, right? That actually says location matters. Um, that was a painful process over many years, uh, and that was incredibly important. He was also one of the founders of Smart Growth America, and he and I today serve on that board together. Uh, so we are honored and delighted to have Kay join us tonight here in Baltimore. To be working with the Pratt on this event uh, is just a wonderful honor. Uh, they made tonight's event so easy. It's great working with pros. So please join me in welcoming Cade Benfield to Baltimore. Thank you, Drew. And thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight. It is a cold night and a cold month, and I'm about fed up with all of that. But uh, <laughs> I can't think of a place that I would rather be than here tonight. And I'd also like to thank the Pratt Library, this wonderful institution, for hosting us and allowing us to spend some time together. And of course, I'd like to thank the Ivy Bookshop, uh, who is here with books. I hope some of you will be interested in books. I'm certainly interested in sticking around afterwards and 
chatting about books and signing books. This is a really exciting time for me. So I can stay here all night if you want. It'd be a lot of fun. Um, so People Habitat is about 25 ways to think about greener, healthier cities. But I'm going to tease you by only talking about seven of those. And let's talk first about why the title, People Habitat. Well, I hope it signifies a number of things. One is people come first. If our solutions don't work for people, they're never going to work for the planet. The other thing is habitat. Just like wildlife habitat, the habitat that we build for people, our homes, our neighborhoods, our towns, our cities, our regions, have an ecology to them. And they work best when all of the elements of the ecology are in balance and can be sustained over time. So before I get into the seven, I'm going to pause and do a little bit of a reading. I'm not going to be doing a lot of reading tonight, but a couple times during the presentation, I'm going to stop. And this is from the prologue to the book, which will give you a little bit about me. I wrote the book all in the first person. It's a very personal book to me. And the title of the prologue is Cities of the Imagination. And the two paragraphs that I'm going to read to you go like this. As a kid living with working class parents in a small, sleepy southern city, I mostly imagined rather than experienced larger cities of consequence. That said, my hometown of Asheville was hardly without its merits. Most of all, its location in the middle of the majestic southern Appalachian Mountains with the Blue Ridge to the northeast and the Great Smokies to the southwest. When not exploring nature, chances are I was playing tennis, teaching myself guitar, or spending time with various church youth groups, because that's what many of us did in that time and place. We did have a smallish downtown, though, and instinctively, that's where I wanted to be on a Saturday if I wasn't doing one of those other things. I would hop on the city bus, take myself downtown, and hang out. I loved the city library, the tiny downtown park and larger main square, the Woolworths, the movie theater, the music store, especially the library and music store. Downtown, sleepy though it was, seemed like a place where things happened, where grown-ups more important than me did what exactly? If I considered that part at all, it was with my imagination. I think in a way, my interest in cities has been a quest to find places that measure up against those cities of my imagination in my childhood. The first point I'm going to tantalize you with is sometimes in thinking about healthier, greener, greener cities, it's best not to think about cities. Now, what do I mean by that? Instead, I'd like to encourage us to think about regions, particularly metropolitan regions and neighborhoods. In the slide, we're looking at metropolitan Cincinnati from the Kentucky side of the river. The inset is the wonderful historic and recovering neighborhood of over the Rhine, just north of downtown Cincinnati. And the main reason that I want to think about regions rather than cities, because the environment doesn't care too much about city limits and jurisdictional boundaries. I like to argue that those boundaries are important to cartographers, they're important to candidates for public office, they're not particularly relevant to air, water, and energy, and transportation, or the economy. And in fact, to give you an example of city limits, that are not particularly relevant to the environment. How about these? If you can find a rationale for why the city limits of Atlanta were drawn this way instead of another way, then you know a heck of a lot more about the geography and history of Atlanta than I do. Uh, I'm, I suspect there's a story behind each one of those squiggles, but I'm not sure I really want to know it. Uh, Baltimore by comparison, has a much more rational 
uh, set to its city boundary. But I would also submit to you to, that what we're looking at in this slide is the imposition of the city limits of Baltimore upon a satellite photo of what has become the real Baltimore as Baltimore has spread out. The other scale at which I think greener, healthier cities operate and that I'd like for us to think about is neighborhoods. Neighborhoods are where we encounter our environment on an everyday basis. Neighborhoods are also where increments of change take place. Neighborhoods are where we can have an impact. Neighborhoods are where we can shape greener, healthier cities. Provocative point number two. Americans don't walk much, and I don't blame them. We're not a very fit country. We used to be. In less than a generation, we've gone from a country in which no state in the union had an obesity rate of even 20%. In 14 years, we've gone to a country where every state in the union, except one, if you're from Colorado, God bless you, has an obesity rate greater than 20%. Most have an obesity rate greater than 25%, and some have a rate greater than 30%. This has become our nation's number one public health problem. Because as our weight has increased, so has diabetes. On exactly the same trajectory. I don't think that is a coincidence. Now, now I'm not going to argue that the shape of our built environment, the shape of our people habitat, is the only reason why we're gaining weight. But the research teaches us that it is a significant reason. And when I say we're not walking very much, we really aren't. This is a study of 17 countries by National Geographic. Guess who's last? That would be us. The Canadians, with their colder weather, walk more than we do. The Brits walk twice as much as we do. The French walk even more than that. The Brazilians, when they're not dancing at the world's greatest parties, walk a lot more than that. But we don't walk very much, and why in the world would we walk when we've been building environments like this? Where walking is at best inconvenient and usually dangerous as well. I would ask you if this place looks like one in which the pedestrian is respected. Unfortunately, the two places that I just showed you look like a lot of America today. Instead, we need to be building better places. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, when you were a kid, walked or rode a bike to school? That's a lot of you in the room. How many of you have a child who walks or rides a bike to school? A few, but not very many. Now, that's not a very scientific survey, but as you see, the statistics support the difference that we saw here in the room. We've gone in, what, 40 years from a nation in which most of us walk to school to a nation in which very few of us walk to school. And why in the world would anybody walk to a school like this? The campus is twice as big as Disneyland. The parking lots take up more space than the classroom. And there is nothing remotely close, and remotely is the right word, to walk to or from, even if someone were so inclined. And before leaving the subject of schools, I want to say a little bit about the design of the schools that we're building today. This is the proud high school in McHenry County, Illinois, west of Chicago. They've got a great fight song. You go to their website. Fight song is actually pretty cool. But the design of the school, to me, looks just like a Walmart. I mean, I don't know how you tell one from the other, except perhaps by the sign in front. The inset, of course, is the way we used to build schools when schools held importance as the anchors of our communities. We don't do that enough anymore. To design better habitat for walking, we need better pedestrian infrastructure including what we now call complete streets that accommodate pedestrians as well as motorists 
transit users and bicyclists, traffic at appropriate speeds, things to walk to. The research teaches us that if there's retail nearby, that people will walk 25% more than if there isn't. And if you put all these things together with connected streets, connected streets, by the way, are the most important indicator of how much walking takes place in the neighborhood, it makes a 10-pound difference on average. Even when you tease out other factors, such as ethnicity, age, and income, people who live in walkable neighborhoods weigh on average about 10 pounds less than people who don't. Here you see why street connectivity matters. It simply shortens travel distances. So if you shorten travel distances, you can walk more. Now that also shortens driving distances, which means you don't have to drive as far and carbon emissions go down. Okay, this is a point that's really dear to my heart. Cities need nature. We are biophilic beings. Our ancestors needed to have a keen awareness of nature in order to survive. And that connection has been passed down to us and has become part of our inherited humanity. So I'm going to stop and read another passage now. This is only a couple sentences. It's from the chapter called Cities Need Nature. In cities, the presence of nature connects us with growth in the seasons, providing a softness to complement the concrete of our streets and sidewalks and the brick and wood of our houses. Who among us has not enjoyed a stroll, ridden a bike, read a book, a magazine, learned a sport, fallen in love, or otherwise enjoyed the communion with nature provided by a lovely city park? And speaking of lovely city parks, here's one of my favorites. This is Russell Square in London. It's in the middle of a mixed-use district in the Bloomsbury part of London, if you know it. It's uh, every bit as wonderful as it looks. You can get some really good scones there if you're into that. But it's important that we think not just of ways in which we can incorporate nature into cities through parks, but other ways. We're in Hartford, Connecticut in this slide. A street called Capitol Avenue, looking towards the Capitol, you can see the gold dome there of the state of Connecticut. There's a plan to green Capitol Avenue and make it look like this. Now let me point out some of the ingredients. Street trees are obvious. We've also got the grassy strips. Down at the end of the street, there's a rain garden. And importantly, in the parking bays and in the crosswalks, we've got pavers instead of asphalt. Pavers allow the rainwater to sink down into the ground and be filtered rather than run off into the sewer system and overflow. In a place where the Chesapeake Bay is so important as it is in Baltimore, that's critical. And really, where would you rather live? Would you rather live here? Or would you rather live there? I think the answer is pretty clear. In the case of Hartford, they were assisted by a wonderful EPA program called Greening America's Capitals, which is how they're able to do this. Uh, and EPA is, I think they go to about five state capitals a year and allow them to uh, be supported in constructing greening plans. And this is uh, the one that Hartford chose to do. Urban nature, in addition to providing filtration for rainwater, supports public health. The research is full of studies about how nature is good for health. It cools cities in the summertime, so we don't need to use as much air conditioning. When we don't use as much air conditioning, we don't use as much energy. When we don't use as much energy, we don't emit as much carbon and greenhouse gases. And by the way, nature absorbs carbon. Property values near nature go up. It provides shade for walkability and so on. Number four, beware the fancy name. 
If it sounds a little bit like it's out of place, chances are that it is. Here we're looking at a lovely town square. (laughs) The name of this particular street is City Center Boulevard. There's no city, there's no center, there's no boulevard, there's a shopping mall at the end. And then there's the wonderful habit of naming subdivisions after the things that they replace. (laughs) But we should remember that sometimes names engage in truthful advertising as well. (laughs) I have a lot of fun with that chapter. Okay, number five, and Drew alluded to this in the introduction. What seems green may actually be brown. Or in other words, a green building in the wrong place isn't really green. Let me tell you why. The carbon profile of a green building comprises two different parts. One is the energy consumed and carbon emitted by the building itself and its operations. The other is the traffic that the building generates. Now, typically in the United States, we spend more energy getting to and from a building than the building itself uses. So if we look only at what's inside the building and fail to look at the transportation footprint of the building, then we're going to miss the big picture. Now I'm going to get really geeky on you. This is a GIS map of metropolitan Chicago. And the reason I'm showing it to you is that it illustrates that different parts of a region have different carbon footprints. Follow the bouncing laser. Downtown, people don't need to drive as much. Main reason is because driving distances are shortened when you're in central locations. There's also more transit and more walkability, but the main reason is the difference in, in driving distances. As you go out, the shades get darker, meaning people have to drive more. And when you go way out, people have to drive a lot more. I raised this because of a subdivision called Prairie Ridge. Prairie Ridge's developer claims it is the first net zero subdivision in the United States. Now, by net zero, they mean that the houses are super energy efficient, that they have some renewables on site, so the house doesn't use any more energy than the subdivision produces. It's net zero, supposedly. But here's where it is. It's 40 miles from downtown Chicago. This is what the site looks like across the road. It is the Corn Belt, after all. And here's where it is on that carbon map. It's in the dark red area. Now, there's a wonderful app that's hosted by the Center for Neighborhood Technology called Abogo. And you can go to Abogo, punch in an address or location, and it'll tell you what the average carbon transportation footprint is for that location. And it will compare it to other locations and to the regional average, okay? Told you it was geeky, bear with me. Well, here's what happens if you go to a BOGO and look up Prairie Ridge. The supposedly net zero development emits four times as much greenhouse gas from driving as does a location downtown, and almost twice as much as the average of the region as a whole, including its suburbs. And by the way, if you look up Prairie Ridge on WalkScore, people know what WalkScore is? WalkScore is another really great app that sort of determines how close a place is to walkable destinations. And it's a zero to 100 score. I, my neighborhood's like a 82 or something. I live in a in, an older neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Well, the walk score for Prairie Ridge is zero. Now, that's that's a net zero of sorts. 
I don't think it's the one that the builder was advertising. Okay. Revitalization can be powerful. And this is kind of the opposite of what seems green may actually be brown. Because in the case of revitalization, we're usually operating in centrally located districts that start out with low carbon footprints for transportation. So whatever else we build there has a leg up on trying to be green. And our cities were so badly disinvested, many of them, including Baltimore, including Washington for that matter, in the second half of the 20th century, that there are a lot of neighborhoods still that need reinvestment. When we do reinvest in these places, we're making green places, even if we aren't trying. That's because we've got a good location. We're recycling land. We're recycling infrastructure and buildings and returning investment to distressed neighborhoods. The image in this slide is from a wonder, wonderful program of the Baltimore Housing Office called Vacants to Value. Has anybody heard of it? A lot of people have heard of it. Vacants to Value is really innovative in which the department targets neighborhoods for reinvestment and encourages people to rehab properties there and encourages other parts of the city bureaucracy to cooperate in making them nicer places. So revitalization is definitely the number one way to go if you want to create greener places. The danger, of course, with revitalization is gentrification. And if it's not done sensitively, people who are renters in a neighborhood may not be able to afford to stay there as the rents go up. If you're a homeowner, you're actually in a better position because the value of your property will appreciate. This is a good thing for a homeowner. If you're rehabbing vacant properties, you're not pushing anybody out because you're rehabbing a property that's now vacant. But gentrification is something that we always need to be sensitive to. When I said earlier that if our solutions don't work for people, they're not going to work for the planet, well, they've got to work for all the people. So I want to do another reading for you here. This is from a chapter titled, In a Revitalizing District, Some Gentrification Might Be Okay, But Not Too Much. Having been burned more than once, current city dwellers of modest means may be suspicious of well-to-do newcomers. My belief is that we should be working for revitalization that encourages mixed-income neighborhoods in which new residents and businesses are welcomed while displacement is avoided or minimized. But make no mistake, that gentrification must continue to take place in America's cities. The truth is that what some badly disinvested districts and neighborhoods desperately need is some amount of gentrification. The challenge is to have enough without having too much. Now, I don't claim that's easy. But if that's not the goal, then we're going to screw it up. There are some places that are doing a great job of it. This is a neighborhood called Old North St. Louis. You can see the gateway arch in the background. Old North was so badly disinvested that when people fled to the suburbs out of fear and racism and all the other things that people fled for in, in the uh, latter half of the 20th century, that Old North lost 90% of its population. That's a pretty big number. Today, Old North is starting to come back, and it's coming back in this wonderful, inclusive, neighborhoody, diverse way because the people there sort of took control of their own revitalization and been working with some very sensitive community developers to do that. And it's just really one of my favorite, favorite stories. Here's another one. And I'll recognize Marissa Ramirez, my colleague, who's in the uh, audience tonight because she worked on this one. This is Codman Square in Boston. Codman Square is another neighborhood that was disinvested. It's got good bones. 
It's got a good location. In fact, they're getting a new transit station. But it's also kind of run down in places. It's low income. What my organization, NRDC, has been doing, it's been helping the residents and the community developers in Codman Square create a sustainability plan so that their investments as they go forward will be green and healthy and inclusive. It's really one of the most wonderful things I've worked on. We've got a number of neighborhoods across the country where we're, we've been able to be invited in to do this. And it's a wonderful, uh, really gratifying uh, thing to do with your professional life. One of the best examples I've seen of gentrification done right, not really gentrification, but revitalization, because they avoided gentrification in this case. The name of this neighborhood is Mariposa, and it's in Denver. It's about a mile and a half from downtown Denver. It's on the light rail line. And it was a dilapidated public housing project that's being redeveloped by the, Dis the Denver Housing Authority and a public-private partnership. The new neighborhood is going to be bigger. It's going to have more units in it, but it's, but it's going to have just as many affordable units. And it's being built in stages so that no building is demolished until the residents of that building have a new affordable place to live in their neighborhood. Now, it wasn't by accident that they created this. They were sensitive. And they went through an incredible process. They talked to everybody in the neighborhood. What do you like about your neighborhood? What do you want to see that you don't have now? How are your kids doing? They had 140 community meetings. God bless them. That's a lot, right? They appointed a steering committee with a majority of members from the neighborhood. And they just put in a ton of green features, including a, a job training center. It's a wonderful example, Mariposa and Denver. Okay, final point. Gertrude Stein famously said of Oakland, California, there is no there there. Now, I think if she were saying that today about Oakland, it'd be a little unfair. I, I kind of think Oakland's coming back in a pretty cool way. And scholars debate what she meant when she said it back in the 30s, I guess. But it's my belief that places do have to have a there. Places have to have intrinsic value. We've been building throwaway places where everything looks just like every other thing. Why would anybody care about a place that looks like this for very long? They might care about how quickly they can get through it or how quickly they can get to something into it if they need to shop at, you know, buy a Volkswagen or something. Um, <laughs> But it's, 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 not a, it's not a place that speaks to the soul, right? And it's my view that we need to build places that do speak to our souls. We should be creating and sustaining lovable places. And we environmentalists deal in a world of science. We talk about grams of carbon and parts per billion of this and that and vehicle miles traveled and sediment loadings and all kinds of stuff like that. None of that matters unless the places that we're building have intrinsic quality. None of that matters unless the places are lovable, because if the places aren't lovable, they may be sustainable, but they're not going to be sustained. Because the places that are going to be sustained are the ones that people care about, will take care of, and defend over time. Now, sometimes they can be wonderful complex places, such as Quincy Market in Boston, Sometimes they can be a much more informal place, such as this public square in uh, Barcelona. And this slide, by the way, illustrates another principle about people habitat. When we're considering wildlife habitat, we in the environmental field have a phenomenon that we call an indicator species. 
people heard of an indicator species in the audience? Quite a few of you have. It's kind of like the canary in the cold mine sort of situation. If a particular bird or fish or other species that you choose is healthy, then chances are the ecosystem as a whole is healthy. Well, I think for people habitat, the indicator species are children and elders. And if children and elders look comfortable and happy in a place, chances are that's a pretty good place. This is my hometown. I started with my hometown, so I had to come back to it. That's our city hall in the background. Another very informal place, but it's a place that people love. It's a place that people are going to care about. This is a market not too far from my home, and this market was defended. When the owner of the market reached the age where he was ready to retire and get out of the business, the neighbors banded together to save the market, and some of them invested in it because they cared about it. They cared about their neighborhood. And this is New Orleans. And this is my closing slide because I think that there are few places in America that have more of a there than does New Orleans. So this last reading is from the chapter, There Must Be a There. Sometimes the there is about more than physical space. In New Orleans, it's also about music. No big city in America has a richer local culture or is more steeped in music, without which New Orleans would be as hollow an identity as New York without skyscrapers or San Francisco without the bay. In New Orleans, music isn't hosted as much as lived. New Orleans is universally acknowledged as the birthplace of jazz, which begat boogie woogie, which begat rhythm and blues, which begat rock and roll, which begat funk, which begat hip hop, and so on. Mix in the French Creole, there's little New Orleans music right there. Mix in the French Creole influence and a brass band marching down a street in the Marigny district leading a second line of followers, half walking, half dancing, strutting to the rhythm, always the rhythm, and heaven help you if you can stay in a bad mood. That, my friends, is good people habitat. I hope we have a chance to have a little Q&A. Drew, do we have time for a little discussion? We have time for a few questions, and then okay. I can talk with them informally. I should find the <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to call on people or do you want me? Um, I, I was just reading an article by a gentleman named uh, Richard Smith from Persian. Um, and he talks that unless we get away from the capitalistic economy and turn to the ecological economy, there's always no hope. I was wondering if you opinions about that. I don't like the odds on that one. Can you repeat the question? The, the question was that in, unless we turn away from a capitalistic economy to an ecological economy, then we have no hope. I think that's a tough sell. Um, I don't disagree in principle, but I'm more the kind of guy who wants to work on things in the near term where we can actually see progress. And I have a feeling that the capitalistic economy is going to be around for a while, for better or worse. Yes, sir, from the white. Um, I've been a planner in Baltimore City, Baltimore County for a number of years. And I recognize a lot of people in this room. And you're talking, you have a beautiful presentation. You're speaking to those of us who I believe are with you. The frustration is the other 90% of people. I mean, in Baltimore County, we were always trying to get cul-de-sacs connected. And the, the neighbors said, no, we want our cul-de-sacs. We try to get trans, we don't want those, but undesirable. So it's sort of like we're working in a sense with the supply side here. But what about the demand side? When people get in these communities, they love them. But until they're there, they are comfortable with what they know. And that's very 
challenging question. So how does how do you or your organization look approach sort of the getting the average quote person on board some the question was, how do we get regular people on board with good things when a lot of regular people are resistant to change? I'm an optimist. And I also have kind of a long-range view. I, I know I just said I like to work on things that we can accomplish quickly. But I also believe that when we change paradigms of land use, and it takes time. You know, it took 50 years to create this god-awful sprawl, and it's probably going to take 50 years to create something better. But the demographics are on our side. What we have is the convergence of the two largest demographic generations in American history who don't want large lot sprawl anymore. One is the millennial generation. They want smartphones and technology. They don't, they're not, my 16th birthday was one of the happiest days of my life because I could get a driver's license. It was cool. I still like cars. I, I don't apologize for liking cars. I'm glad I don't have to drive so much. But I like driving sometimes. A lot of people I know who are 25 or less couldn't care less. They can rent a zip car if they need one. They can walk. They, they choose to live in walkable places. They're not interested in large lot suburbia. And although when they have kids, some of them probably will be interested in larger lots in suburbs, the demographics are such that there are not going to be as many of them at that point as there were in the baby boomer generation. So actually, the demographers believe that we're oversupplied already in large lot housing. Now, the other cohort that's coming of age that baby boomers are now empty nesters and retiring. So if they're moving, they're not necessarily looking for a big lot either. I think cities are coming back. I think it's been a long, hard road, and I, I really, for those of you who are planners and, and started working on this 20, 30 years ago, God bless you, you know, because you were ahead of us. You were ahead of the environmental community, and we learned from you. But I think we're going to win. We may not win everywhere at the same time. Some places are going to come along slower than others. But I think things are moving in a really good direction. Yes, sir. Yes. In your Chicago map, there was one bright red dot downtown in an otherwise low-carbon area. Do you know what caused that? Um, that is a great question. Whoops. Right there, by the O in Chicago. Yeah, I see it, and I wonder. I don't know. Oh, it's a dot. It's like a Chicago is here dot. <coughs> no? Oh. I don't know okay. what it is. The white spaces, by the way, are just where they didn't have data. You know, they're like, they're like airports and stuff. But it, but it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I mean, obviously, no pattern is going to be perfect, right? But the pattern, the general pattern holds. Yes, sir, in the black. In your, uh, your slide about um, gentrification, I agree with the point that we need some. But the competition issue is, as you mentioned, renters are the ones that are usually pushed out. But the time that it takes to convert renters to either homeowners to create a property that is rent control of some sort takes longer than it does for the gentrification to actually happen. So do you agree? Is that, I mean, that's pretty much the point. I think there are buyers ahead of time or something in place. The question is what about renters who, who can't improve their financial situation quick enough to get ahead of the gentrification? I think it's a serious problem, to be honest. Uh, I, I, I think that gentrification is a problem that we haven't solved yet. 
my commitment is that we need to work on it and keep being sensitive to it. I actually saw uh, on the uh, blog of the um, National Housing Council a week or so ago a legislative proposal that was kind of comp complicated, but it was basically designed to give long-time renters in a neighborhood a chance to recapture some of the value as the value of the neighborhood increase so that they could get stipends to move up in the neighborhood. I'm sure it's filled with all sorts of traps and holes and all, but it was the first time I'd seen something that would actually be like a, a city ordinance kind of proposal to deal with it. It's a tough problem. I, I'm not going to say we've solved it. Yes, sir. My personal interest is on the, uh, the impact of these changes relative to the boomer generation, or the older adult, and how being in these environments can be healthier when there's more amenities and walkable spaces. But my specific question is, I recently heard um, another author introduced a book called the Great Inversion. <coughs> it's called The Great Inversion, and it looks at the reality that this is happening right now about the revitalization of older malls being converted to town centers. And it looks at what's happening in certain urban markets. It does various case centers throughout the country. My question to you is, as you see this happen, uh, being the optimist that you are, how do you compare and contrast the likelihood and the challenges of a more urban environment versus a suburban environment? And, <coughs> I'm more curious, in some sense, on the suburban side, because that tends to be where more older adults live today. I think that's a great question. Uh, the, the question was, what do I think about revitalization in an urban environment versus revitalization in a suburban environment? I'm for both. I, I think we've got to improve our suburbs. And I do think that a large number of people are going to want to continue to live in suburbs. It doesn't necessarily they want to live in the kind of suburbs that we've been giving them over the past few decades. Uh, one of the plans that won an award from the American Planning Association a couple of uh, years ago was for a suburb of Columbus called Dublin, Ohio. Dublin is the wealthiest suburb in the state of Ohio. And it's just like an edge city, a lot of big corporate offices, a lot of surface parking lots, a lot of strip malls, but not very many people, actually, you know. And what, the, what they found is that the business leaders in those corporations could no longer attract the kind of workers that they needed to support those corporations. So really, the pressure came from the business community on the local planners to say, we got to do something here because it's our future. So they created a mixed-use walkable district in, their, in what had been their main corridor and their main crossroads, sort of. And they're creating a walkable downtown there. Uh, so I'm pretty optimistic about the suburbs as well, although the challenges in the suburbs are are not to be uh, uh, dismissed completely. I, I, I do think that um, the best way to retrofit suburbs is as commercial buildings go out of business and those commercial parking lots around the strip malls become obsolete. They then become potential redevelopment sites that can be made better. Yes. Briefly get back to this question about capitalism because I don't believe that that needs to be abolished before you can have change. Uh, I'm a co-founder of the Thousand Friends of Maryland that uh, are the co-sponsors tonight and we don't believe that either. There are plenty of capitalist countries in the world that have different outcomes inside the capitalistic system. You had the charts in the beginning there which countries walk more. And those same countries that walk more, they have about half of the carbon footprint per person. They have half about the driving per person. And that's still a capitalistic system in Spain or Germany or 
document or whatever. So the, the, the problem that the thousand trends try to attack is the, the balance of the rules and what is produced and what is the manner in which we set up the deck of cards. Because people in the United States have not got any other choices for 50 years or 70 years than what we have and what these pictures show. And so therefore, zoning the rules, what costs what, where is the value generated, and what cost is internally to a calculation and which one is external is really key to things. And with energy is super cheap, because we made it through our policies super cheap, then driving was too cheap. But that has all changed now. And we are close to that sprawl really has bankrupted the country on all kinds of levels, on the individual household level, where the cost for transportation has gone increasingly up and is now higher than most other costs. On the communal level, municipalities are bankrupted, and on the state and the federal level. And so we are really at the turning point where all what I was saying is really um, coming to bear and in favor of us. And so therefore, I think we are optimists that um, you know the Thousand Friends have daily fights, monthly fights about what the next laws are in Annapolis, what the zoning is in the city of Baltimore, in Baltimore County, or what have you, in the entire state of Maryland. And we all need lots of more help. So if, if those <laughs> fights are real, and they do have direct outcomes, that positive outcomes. So they are doable. We don't have to wait for the day when some kind of big revolution changes the entire framework. Well, thank you for that point. And I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight and asking a, a really good set of questions, I think, that really uh, raise a lot of these issues. And one of the things I promised in the book was that I was going to talk about some of the issues that we haven't solved yet, some of the issues that are sort of difficult and not pretend to have all the answers. I mean, my view is that if somebody claims to have all the answers, chances are they're faking it, really. I mean, <laughs> none of us have all the answers. We do the best we can with incomplete sets of information. Uh, but it's been wonderful for me to be here. Uh, thanks again to the Pratt Library. Thanks to Thousand Friends of Maryland. I think they're, Julie, are there books set up somewhere? Or? Yes, let's say, uh, let's give a big round of applause to Kate and Bill. <laughs>